This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, I'm Helen and Stephen who's quietly coughing himself into a flux somewhere. So it's just me on the intro, but he will be joining us in a moment to talk about all things Brexit. We've got the Attorney General's legal advice. We've got the ECJ judgment. It is almost too exciting. Plus, we're going to talk about the case of Kate Osmore and what it means for our democratic norms. Stephen, I'm so pumped to talk about Brexit that I nearly released my own workout video about it, like Aaron Bastani, but thankfully for our listeners, I have not. Tell me all about Brexit. Well, so in some ways, the story hasn't moved along all that much. The government is heading for uh, inevitable defeat, but since our last exciting adventure, one of the things we were talking about was that uh, it was not certain how a second referendum could possibly pass the House of Commons without a shift in the politics of the Conservative Party, and at least a sizable number of, of Conservatives who had not previously expressed particularly strong pro-European sentiments deciding they wanted to back a referendum rerun. Since our last podcast... So uh, this is Sam, the resignation of Sam Gima, who was the Universities and Science Minister. Yeah, I would say that is one of the two sort of noteworthy Brexit events. So hang uh, Sam Gimer had been previously at prisons before that? Yes. And is a, a Remainer? Yep. And is generally pretty well liked, pretty well regarded? And why is he more important than, I don't know, I, I guess he's as important as Joe Johnson in his way. Why is he more important than Minister for Paperclips number three who resigned at the same time that Dominic Rabinest evaded? Pretty much all of the other resignations from the government over the withdrawal agreement have been people who have wanted a harder Brexit. And I would say that Sam Gimmer is more important than Joe Johnson because Joe Johnson is known as someone who is more pro-European than the average conservative, right? Yeah, he's someone who's seen as someone who, if he was going to make a big principled stand to, to, to blow up his promising career, you would kind of go, well, that's surprising, but within the the sphere of... Yeah. Whereas, you know, Sam Gimmer is someone who was a Remainer partly because he thought it was de- uh, best on balance, but also because of his close political proximity to David Cameron. I mean, basically, if you kind of think about pro-European conservatism as a sliding scale, starting with Ken Clark and, and Anna Soubry, then you kind of have your sort of like your Nicky Morgans, Nick yeah. Bowleses, then you sort of have Joe Johnson, 
And then at the end of the scale of pro-Europeanism, you'd have, say, Sajid Javid or Jeremy Hunt, right? People who obviously... Oh, wait a minute. The furthest down is like John Redwood. But I'm talking about people who are notionally pro, who vote... Oh, so, I see. And then basically, Sam Gimel would be roughly between your kind of... Now, obviously... He's kind of in the median Tory Remainer, is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, this thing. So obviously one swallow does not make a summer or a spring or whatever season it is, and a swallow is meant to auger. But basically, before, if someone had said, will there be a second referendum, you go, no. Unless you start to see someone like... Sam Yima resign. It's not even remotely plausible from a mathematical perspective how you could get 325 votes. It's still a very big ask, but it's basically gone from being something that you can go, no, to something you can go, mm, probably not. Okay, so that's one useful thing that's happened this week. The other couple of things that have happened is the ECJ's top judge has released his legal ruling on whether or not Article 50 can be revoked. This is the key part, unilaterally. So i.e. Britain can go like, take these backsies, and then doesn't have to wait for the other 27 countries to sign it off. Now, as I understand it, his rulings are gone along with by the EU, what, about four-fifths of the time? Is that about yeah. right? So basically it's an indicative opinion. And in some ways, the kind of useful, I was about to say this, the layman's way to understand it, the politico's way to understand it is it's a bit like the first seat to declare on election night. Sometimes the first seat to declare on election night, the swing is not the same, it doesn't tell you very much. A lot of the time, even if the result is different, the swing will be indicative. And essentially, the Advocate General's opinion is like that as far as the final ruling. He has said Article 50 can be revoked by the departing nation. There are a couple of important caveats. The first is that it would require an act of Parliament. And therefore 325 votes. 325 votes, which is difficult. The second is, is the opinion is clearly shaped in a way that you can't simply go... So basically, if you have a second referendum, you would need to extend Article 50 because there isn't time for one. And the extension does have a unilateral uh, right of veto by any other member state. So hang on a minute. If we ask, to, if we ask okay, can we have another six months to have a referendum, then Spain can go, ah, uh, ha no, because we're very upset about Gibraltar, soz lads. Yeah. But the, the theory is that if we go, actually, we want to bin the whole thing off, maybe forever, maybe only for a bit, then they can't veto us. Yes, but the crucial bit is the maybe only for a bit. The EU's lawyers said in their argument, and you know, I imagine will seek and will probably seek to appeal it if the ruling does follow the opinion. Then basically, what do you do if you have a situation where you where you create the ability for the departing member state to hokey cokey? Yeah, to kind of continually go, hey, I'm Matteo Salvini. I'm just going to you know to revoke and not revoke as uh, as I so so desire. He could have a revoke button on his desk and he could just press it every so often when he just wanted to annoy the EU. So yeah, so there are various ways and it will be designed so you can't do it solely to give yourself extra time. Now, I mean, in some ways, this is going to sound more critical than I mean it to be because I don't really know sort of what, you know, kind of second referendums could have done differently on this one. But one problem is that pro-Europeans have been a lot better at winning legal battles than they have political ones. So on things like the meaningful vote, for example, Gina Miller's court case, that sort of stuff. Yeah, the Gina Miller court case is sort of the er example, right? Successfully got the right for Parliament to vote. Parliament then went, we don't need any caveats. Where we're going, we don't need roads. And you end up with Article 50 triggered, the, the default scenario of no deal set for the 29th of March 2019. Yeah, I mean, I'm semi-dubious as to what you actually could do, short of like a kind of forcing Remainers to move into constituencies and voted heavily to leave, so then you deal with the fact that there's a critical mass of Labour MPs who go, yeah, we would definitely lose our jobs if we did that. And 
you also get another bunch of you Remainers. You vote for to, a second referendum. Yeah, a bunch of Remainers to join the Conservative Party and vote for the next Conservative leadership election. I mean, although those were both things that Nick Clegg kind of semi-seriously suggested people should do, the problem is, is although they were... They're technically correct. They're eye-catching things. And if you say, you know, if I wanted to get loads of angry traffic, I and I, if I did a piece headline, Remainers should just join the Tories. I mean, it would Remainers be... Remainers should just move to Grimsby and join yeah, the Tories. Yeah, it, those things would both be technically correct points. Mm. It's just... No one's going to do them. They're not... Yeah, they're, yeah. yeah, they are just not going to happen. But, you know, it, basically, I just think... it's. I think it's a useful position for the EU to, have clar- to be clarifying the legal status around Article 50. It helps Theresa May because she can now much more credibly say to Brexiteers, look... My deal, or my deal. they might have a people's vote and then who knows what will happen. Yeah. Not to be unparochial for like two minutes, but the, the ruling is very interesting as well, given that, I mean, you've said all along from the people that you were talking to, the Article 50 was designed as a kind of punishment process, right? It was there to be used and invoked against an Eastern European nation that slid towards authoritarianism. Well... There are some, at the moment, Viktor Orban's Hungary has already been censured. Well, there was a motion of censure in the European Parliament, which Tory MPs did not vote for, drawing them the condemnation of both the Board of Deputies of British Jews and the Muslim Council of Britain. But if actually the EU finds out that it has weakened its ability to kind of to drum people out, that is something that the EU will probably want to look at in the future too, right? Well, yeah. So John Kerr's idea of what the of Article 50 would, would be used in is he, he imagined a scenario in which one of the new Eastern Bloc countries slides into authoritarianism, it has its voting rights withdrawn, and then it, in a state of protest it triggers Article 50 and leaves. I mean, and also it, it is designed to create leverage and to create a cliff edge, right? Yeah, and I think one of the myths about, yeah, when people say, oh, she, she should, have, should have tried to leave through some method other than Article 50, you would have to be dumb as a brick in order to ever allow the departing nation not to use Article 50 as its exit mechanism. This is the theory that we should have repealed that, what is it, 1975 European Communities Act or something, like that, and done it that way. Yeah. I probably should know this already, so I do not. Does the EU actually have a way to force people out if they don't want to go? Say you're, it's 10 years down the line, Viktor Orban is now dictator for life in Hungary, the independent judiciary is gone, the last newspaper is closed, you know, gerrymandering has reached mad levels. Is there any mechanism for the EU to go, uh, you're really not actually a democracy anymore, we'd like you to leave, thanks? I don't believe so. There are a variety of sanctions, both financial and in terms of voting rights. So you can have a situation where you are not receiving, yeah, in which, and yeah, partly because Cut of how the cash, budget. right? I guess yeah, so there, one of the things that yeah, you there, do there if are, you're a net recipient of there, EU funds. There are ways that your EU membership can become less congenial but no the the idea is envisaged that the exit will be a decision taken by the departing nation not that it will be exited one final thing before we move on jeffrey cox the attorney general there seems to be a weird thing where tories have got this thing about how lovely his voice is like he's sort of i don't know a charming old wizard but anyway, that's irrelevant to my question, which is about his legal advice as Attorney General, which is, again, giving me oh, such flashbacks to the Iraq war. He's been refusing to publish anything other than the summary of it. Labour have been trying to say that's contempt of Parliament. Does it matter? Is it just a useful political bludgeon for, for Labour to have legal advice that says presumably will be a lot poorer and that is the official considered view of the government? Well, no, so the legal advice is not going to touch on issues of poverty. It will just touch on, you know, the, what the legal reality will be. So what does that mean? So just what is the legal status of the backstop? What does that mean for our relationship? What does that mean for the ECJ? Now, so I think... So they... why don't they want it out? Because is it going to say a lot of things that Conservative Brexiteers are going to have a proper feint at? Yeah, I mean, I think essentially, right, there are two subplots here. One, there is, is the legal judgment going to say anything that we don't know? 
No. So the fundamental difference is with the uh, war against Iraq, obviously the government's contention was that the war was legal and the contention of some opponents of the war was that the war was illegal. So therefore, the substance of what Goldsmith was saying was therefore important because it was contended. No lawyer disputes that there is no unilateral right of exit from the backstop. Yeah, you are still subject to the strictures of the European court, right? So in some ways, the actual substance of the legal issue, the legal documents makes no sense. And it purely is about the kind of Westminster theatre of Geoffrey Cox saying, the backstop is indeed a backstop. And a bunch of Conservative MPs going, whoa! And then a bunch of people in the lobby tweeting, wow, huge if true. But there is a really important principle that Parliament has, that the government is not the client. Parliament is the client of the Attorney General. Parliament has asked for the legal documents and therefore they ought to receive it and it is part of our general really troubling erosion of our norms. Well, we haven't got time to talk about our erosion of norms. May I just say that how much I enjoyed your column in the Christmas issue, which will be out by the time that people listen to this. And if anyone is interested, Stephen has been eating a lot less meat this year. So while you're writing about the erosion of our norms, perhaps people could send in exciting vegetarian recipes to him. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call. <coughs> yeah. Have you got TB? I think is the question I'm asking as I'm trapped in this very small room with you. Stephen, I think that the most interesting question is why wasn't everyone able to agree a clearly established set of facts which you could all hold in your mind at the same time around the case of Kate Osmore? So, this is the former Labour Shadow Diffid Minister who employs her son Ishmael who's 29 in her private office he was also a counsellor in Haringey he pleaded guilty to possession of about two and a half thousand pounds worth of drugs at a music festival he's resigned from the council stayed in her office she wrote a letter in support of his character which fair enough she is his mum that is the kind of thing that mums tend to do but was very cagey about revealing it the times and other newspapers eventually got it revealed that she was one of the people who'd written these letters, at which point she flipped out at the reporter who went to doorstep her to get comment from her, threatened him with a bat, which you'll notice it's never specified what kind of bat, baseball, cricket, fruit, and then threw a bucket of water over him. I found this, trying to follow this story, was like entering a, a nest of partisan iniquity, right? It's that just everybody's take seemed so framed by whether or not they were on her side or not. 
So yeah, so the, the central problem was that she gave misleading answers about when she knew about the charge. But I mean, it is, see, you said, and I wasn't going to get to talk about the erosion of our norms, right? So to take, you know, one particular example, Trevor Kavanagh saying, well, what would have happened if this had been a conservative minister? And she's like, well, we know that actually it would be exactly the same, which is that if the minister didn't want to resign, they would not face any pressure to do so, right? So this is the kind of really troubling place I think we're in, which is actually the kind of big macro story, which is why did Amber Rudd resign over Windrush? Downing Street wanted to keep hold of her. It was because she thought she needed to go. Why did Esther McVeigh not resign when she was found to have lied to Parliament? Because she didn't want to go, and Downing Street doesn't believe that to be a thing that's worth enforcing. Why has Ian Lavery not had to stand down when he has faced a series of very credible questions about the goings-on in NUM? Again, because it's the National Union of Miners National and about his mortgage payments. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, again, because there is because there is no desire for him to go. Why did Kate Osmore step down? Because she believed that she had to go. And absolutely, if she hadn't believed that she needed to go, she would still be there. And this has always been. I mean, it's one of those other things where this has always been a feature of our unwritten constitution that do uh, a bad thing, resign for it. Uh, yeah, but the, and then there's, there is no reason you have to do that. It's just you just do. And I so found I, the response to it just baffling, though. So I thought Clive Lewis, also a, um, you know, in that kind of part of the party, really had a very measured tweet, which just said, you know, people defend their families, but it was the right decision for her to go. You know, thanks for your service. But the uh, the kind of Corbyn Media Outrider take seemed to be much more along the line of it's terrible to see a rare black woman get hounded out of her job, which I thought that is an analysis that I accept. But it's also, I mean, just being a rare black woman in politics does not give you license to threaten people with a bat. Yeah, I mean, I think actually, to be honest, even the kind of so what she said about the bat was I should hit, I uh, ought to I ought to have hit yeah. you with this bat in the kind of past participle. But I actually think the thing is right is the the, the misleading answers are enough in my view. I mean, they clearly aren't enough anymore because we live in this weird world in which Esther McVeigh somehow managed to resign as a hero, and then Amber Rudd's first PMQs after only four months after having resigned for not being on top of what was going on in her department. Yeah, um, which led to elderly people being deported to countries where they didn't speak the language and knew no one yeah. and may have died over there before they got a chance to have their case heard. Yeah, people going, oh, you know, your honourable predecessor, and it's just like, no, this is really, really bad for our, our democracy. But I think there are sort of two corroding problems in the kind of lack of shame. The first is that it makes people understandably really reluctant to suffer damage on their side, right? There are very few... The arms race theory, right? Yeah, right. This thing is like, seeing as we now, we now know that you can lie to Parliament, the NAO can write a public letter calling you out on it, you are not asked to resign. This is McVeigh. Yeah, yeah and then you can resign and still be some kind of... He- right? Principled people, Brexit yeah, hero, people, yeah. She's still treated as a legitimate political actor, which I'm sorry, in my view, you are not a legitimate political actor if you do all of those things. So at that point, everyone, whether you're a conservative Remainer, whether you're anyone in the Labour Party you're kind of going, but why should we suffer political damage? And so what you then do is you have a variety of disingenuous takes, uh, right? I mean, so let's take, say, the war on drugs. It's true that the war on drugs is a disaster. She did, however, stand on a manifesto, which, despite her her own opposition to it, did commit to continue the, the disastrous war on drugs. So it's a bit specious to then turn around and go, but this policy, which we are fully committed to backing is bad that should be some mitigation but we we are in this really really troubling world in which basically 
the only time anyone resigns anymore is if they have the decency to resign themselves because neither of our political leaders are, are going to do that. And considering that both of them have got away with it, it's this weird thing where I ask myself if I was advising some future leader of a political party, should you lose your vital ally, I'd go, write it out. Well, it's also complicated by Brexit, isn't it? And by the factionalism in the Labour Party, the pro-anti-Corbyn, which is that actually it's not just about wanting to not you know, lose somebody that might be valuable in the fight against the opposition party. It's about losing against the own opposing faction in your own party. I think one other thing that I feel quite strongly about is about employing family members in, in Parliament. I've long been very side-eyeing about the fact that John McDonnell employs Jeremy Corbyn's son, which is a legacy of the time that they were both backbenchers. But, I mean, I think it was... Maybe, God, this makes me feel like a million years old, but I remember you saying to me once that Ed Miliband had never faced a job interview in which he didn't already know the interviewer. This is an observation I stole from a Labour MP who said to me that the thing that Cameron and and Ed have got in common is they've never had an interview where they didn't know the person interviewing them beforehand. Right, and uh, I still see the same thing that actually probably Ishmael Osmond did not f- maybe face exactly the same level of interview scrutiny from the fact when he was being employed in his mother's office and continues to be employed in his mother's well, I think, office. I actually do think Seb Corbyn is fine. He's not employed by his own relative. Most people do go into their parents' jobs. Yeah, but politics is different, though. It's not like being a car mechanic or running an accounting firm. But I think the other difference is, is that people really have to trust their staff. So I'm, mm. I'm sort of intensely relaxed about the fact that there are loads of people who, yeah, that kind of rule that if someone has the same surname as uh, an MP they probably are related to that MP, will tend to be a good rule of thumb. The reason why you shouldn't employ your own children is it does place you in the the insidious and terrible position that uh, you end up in a situation in which, like this thing, is, I think everyone would agree it is legitimate for a mother to lie to protect uh, I don't think it's legitimate, child. I think it's understandable. Everyone thinks it is illegitimate for a politician to lie mm. in those circumstances. I think it is legitimate for someone who has been charged and not received a custodial sentence to retain their, their job. In fact, I think it's actively desirable. But the problem is, because that person in, is also the child of the person they're employing, it becomes invidious. That's why you shouldn't do it overall. Whereas, yeah, I think actually people employing people they know in an office where you need to effectively trust your parliamentary staff with your life is fine. It's when it's your own family, however, you are always, most of the time, eventually, you are going to end up doing something. You're going to throw something else under the bus rather than your own child. Which on a human level is completely understandable. And actually I guess the other thing I would say in, about in, in sort of Seb Corbyn's defence is that he has conducted himself in that role from everything that I've seen and heard impeccably, right? He doesn't throw his weight around and be like, hey, don't make me phone up dad and have a word with you. So there is a kind of thing where I also think, well, that's a bit unfortunate that like, the only person who isn't allowed to apply for a job in Parliament is an MP's relative. It's it's a very complicated subject. But I think we can agree on several things, right? So the war on drugs is bad and racially inflected. We can agree that you shouldn't throw water and assault reporters in the course of their job, which the NUJ condemned. You know, not a wildly right-wing body, the NUJ. So nice to have them on side on that one. Employing your children in Parliament is a fraught issue. And it is good that somebody who did something wrong resigned over it. And our norms. And our, your norms. Think of someone, someone think of the norms. Yeah, well, thank you very much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, hosted by me, Helen Lewis, and Stephen Bush, recorded by India Book and produced by Nick Hilton. This week, why not just sign up to Morning Call? Please, for the love of God, sign up to Morning Call and then I won't have to plug it anymore. 
in case you didn't hear us again, we are on the New Statesman podcast live on the 19th of December at Conway Hall from 7pm. If you just Google New Statesman podcast live, you will find it. Tickets are very cheap and we will have some special guests from the podcast bunker. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.